Welcome to New Thinking for a New World, a Tilburg Foundation podcast. I am Alan Stoga, your host. Each week, I bring you conversations with people who think differently about the great issues that are shaping our world. Geopolitics, disruptive tech, mass migration, the changing climate, culture wars, all of it is grist for our mill. I hope you enjoy listening. I also hope you will let me know what you think and that you join the conversation at telbergfoundation.org. And now for today's episode of New Thinking for a New World. Asha DeVos, a couple years ago, the Telberg Foundation honored you as a global leader. As I remember the citation, there were two aspects to your leadership. On the one hand, you are a recognized marine biologist who has done some absolutely amazing work with huge consequences. And on the other hand, you both thought about, but actually worked to flip the script on how science gets done in the global south. Mm -hmm. Let's take those two pieces. Mm -hmm. So start with marine biologists. Mm -hmm. What do you do? Well, um, I study the largest animal that's ever roamed the planet. Um, I discovered that there was a population around the waters in my own country in Sri Lanka that didn't migrate. So typically we think of large whales going to cold places to feed, coming to warm places to breed and carve. And I realized that this beautiful population around the waters of Sri Lanka weren't actually going to cold places. They had figured out how to feed in the warm waters of the Northern Indian Ocean. And that was sort of my eureka moment. And I recognized at that point that they were a very unique population. Uh, since then, I've discovered that they're non-migratory. They uh, feed on things that are different to blue whales everywhere else in the world. They're really well adapted to live in that small ocean basin. Um, and, and for me, it became this crusade to try to protect them. And one of the biggest threats that they face is actually ship strike. They get hit by ships, container ships, and they get killed. And so the work that I've been doing for over a decade now is trying to resolve that problem, is trying to understand how do we separate where we see the whales and where we see the ships? How do we recognize the important areas for these whales, feeding habitats, for example? And then how do we try to understand how, how we live together in harmony, so to speak? So coming up with you know, scientific recommendations to make that difference, to protect these populations in the long term. Do these whales exist anywhere else except your part of the ocean? No, that's what's so beautifully unique about them is that they uh, kind of hang around the east coast of Sri Lanka. They may go down to the Maldives Islands and off to, uh, you know, like the Arabian Sea, but largely they're around the waters of Sri Lanka through their lives. And have they been affected by climate change? So right now it's very difficult for us to know because this population ha hasn't been studied for very long. I've been studying them for just about 20 years now and that for these large animals is a very, very short period of time. Uh, typically about 80 years. So they have long lifespans. They're the giants of our planet. Uh, they're pretty remarkable animals, but we know so little about them. And that's, that's almost the most fascinating part, you know, these giants. And what do we know about them? And what, what information do we have to protect them? So... Everything is a learning curve, and at the same time, we have to keep pushing forward with our protection measures. So when you discovered these animals, I suspect there were a lot of people who said, oh, let's go to Sri Lanka and study them. Mm. Then what happened? I was young, 23-year-old, you know, I had this experience with these blue whales, thought, wow, they seem to be feeding in these waters, which we're not expecting them to do. I wrote off to scientists, and immediately everyone was excited because this had never been seen, Right. Blue whales feeding in warm waters. They were supposed to go to the cold waters, but these guys obviously changed the script on this. 
And immediately I got responses from people who were so excited and they said, yeah, you know, this is amazing. Uh, you know, get us a research permit so we can bring our teams out to study these animals. And I thought to myself, what? You know, at that moment, I was, I was very taken aback because I was looking for guidance and support to build a long-term project in my country, uh, you know, on a population that I had sort of seen this incredible thing happening. And immediately I realized that people were judging me on where I came from and not what I could do and wanting to swoop in and take away from me and my people, actually, at that point. And uh, I was uh, not pleased, to say the least. <laughs> you... I don't know if you coined the term, but you use the term uh, colonial science yeah. to describe exactly. So yeah. define colonial science. Yeah. So colonial science or cons colonial conservation, parachute science, there's many names to that. It's basically where you have researchers from the global north coming to places like Sri Lanka, the global south, doing work and leaving without any investment in the local capacity, investment in infrastructure. So what happens quite often in those situations is that the, the, the funding might come from outside. Uh, that creates an unequal power imbalance. You'll see a crippling of local conservation efforts because, you know, that's being overruled by the work that someone from outside is doing that will mostly have a lot more funding. Uh, so we're basically taking away from people who are doing work on the ground and making them more anon like anonymous and pushing them under the carpet when they're probably doing some great work. And so this can really disrupt the system. And, and, and it, it, it sends a signal out to the world that, you know, in the global south, people aren't capable of doing this work. And therefore, people from outside need to come and do it, you know. And, and that obviously has, um, it's been infuriating me for a long time because I've been at the brunt of that assumption uh, throughout my career. As much as I speak about it, it happens to be even to this date. And, and I, to me, you know, that's very disrespectful. I think we can build partnerships. I think there's room for all of us. Um, we recognize that there are some skills we don't have in, uh, in, you know, in Sri Lanka when we do our work. But, you know, we, in, we can invite people. Uh, we can build projects based on the priorities on the ground rather than the priorities of the person coming from outside. So it's not about enhancing their careers, but it's about actually making a difference for the oceans. Um, and I think creating, understanding that there is room for everyone means that we build equitable partnerships and mutually respectful uh, partnerships that can actually make that difference and have that positive impact. In practical terms, what did you actually do? So for me, I said, okay, you know what? In the past, uh, the outsiders have already br always brought the funds uh, with a predefined uh, project in mind. And then they've come to us and they said, we've got this money, we've got this project. Uh, you can contribute a little bit and we'll get it done and we'll go. Right. And there's no acknowledgement of the ground, uh, what's been contributed from the ground. So I thought, you know, that that's not going to work. That's not sustainable in the long term. Right. So for me, I thought, OK, let, let's try getting the grants. Right. Let's identify what the problems are locally. So looking at the conservation concerns locally. And then I said, OK, who's missing from our team? And then I said, I reached out to collaborators uh, who are now friends. And I said, look, I'd really love if you can come and support us. Uh, you won't be the face of the project uh, as long as you're comfortable with that and understand you won't be because there are local faces who will lead this project. And then they come in and they actually have been incredible because they're supporting our teams, but also providing all their wisdom um, with the understanding that we are working together and we can make that difference. And the more people we train on the ground, right, that means they'll be there in the long term to address these problems that we might come up again or there might be similar problems um, that they'll need to address with their new found skills. And that's been working amazing. Thanks for listening so far. 
I hope you're enjoying the conversation as much as I have. If you haven't already, please subscribe on the platform of your choice and rate us on Apple Podcast. Now back to today's discussion, sponsored by the Stavros Niarchus Foundation, SNF. So it turned out that the international partners just needed to be asked, perhaps in the right way, with the right enthusiasm and the right project. Right. And also the understanding that, look, it's okay for them not to lead, right? Or for them to understand that we and the ground um, really understand the ground situation, the needs of the country. Um, so quite often the, uh, our partners will have a lot of technical knowledge, but that technical knowledge doesn't work in a vacuum you need to have the context. And that context really comes from local partners. And in the past, the contribution of the local partners has not been acknowledged. Whereas here, we need that project and we say, come, join us and let's make that difference. And so I think the work is far more impactful. Uh, and in the long term, it becomes more impactful. And is this change model being implemented elsewhere? I, I'm seeing a lot more colleagues being very enthusiastic about taking ownership in their own countries, uh, feeling like, yeah, maybe, maybe we, can, we, we can be the leaders of these projects and we can invite collaborators in. And I see a lot of um, our now Global North allies, I'd call, as I'd call them, recognizing that they still have a role to play, that they can still be part of these things, but they just have a different, it's a different way of doing it. And, and it's that respectful, equitable partnership model that I think is so important to making that difference. How has your leadership impacted so let me tell you, when I started off, uh, when I was like 17 and I was telling everyone, I'm going to be a marine biologist, people thought I was crazy. People were like, what, what's a marine biologist going to do in this country? Yeah, there's no scope for it. Okay, you'll go abroad and study, you'll never come back, right? Because they didn't know what a marine biologist was or did. Whereas for me, I was like, I want to go study and I want to come back and contribute. And through my work over time and, and, you know, being on documentaries and stuff, my work has had a lot of visibility. And today, as a result of that, more people than ever before want to become marine scientists. More people than ever before want to be marine conservationists in Sri Lanka, but also in the wider region. And it's amazing to see because, you know, the ocean is 70% of our planet. 70% of our coastlines are in the developing world. And we just need more and more people. We cannot solve the problems of the largest part of our planet without the largest team possible. And that's really my goal is like, how do we build the largest team possible, equip everyone to be able to be custodians of their own backyards? Your leadership and accomplishments as a leader are evident in this conversation. What advice would you give to your 17-year-old self or your 22-year-old self that you now have accumulated over the last couple of years? Um, I think one of the key things is uh, knowing what your values are. And by that, I mean, why do you do what you do? Why does it matter? Who are you impacting? Um, and, um, and, you know, what sort of leadership do you want to have? So I think if you know your values and you think about them <clears throat> and you, I think if you know your values and you think about them and you aren't, sort of try to figure out why they matter, in a time of crisis, in a crunch point, it's very easy to act on those values. And that's really good for keeping you on the straight and narrow. Um, I think that has worked for me. I've been in very difficult situations where I have walked out of situations knowing that my values were you know, very well defined. And I would say, always think, and, and your values grow and they also change over time. And that's something we have to acknowledge. Um, I think it's also important to understand the kind of leader you want to be. And in my case, I love service. For me, serving is a very 
important thing. I want to serve the planet, I want to serve my people, and I want to make sure that I do my best to leave this planet a better place than I found it. So I understand that that is the kind of leader I want to be. Um, I want to work with everybody to make that difference. Um, so that's also really, really important. And I think being a leader means also being able to solve problems. So you're not just a, problem, a person who sees problems, but you're solving problems. Um, and, and you need to be able to help people with patience to also start to solve problems rather than only see problems. What do you do when you butt up against a problem that can't be solved? Well, you know, there are all kinds of problems in this world and there's always problems you can't solve. But I think one of the key things I've learned is um, sometimes you may not resolve that problem straight away, but you can take baby steps to making that change. And I've learned to actually celebrate the baby steps that I've, that along the way. Um, because I think it can be disheartening. Like you, and it's also how we define those problems. Sometimes we define them as these big lofty goals. They're way out in the distance and you're like, you know, one year into solving it, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm getting low that, right? And you're frustrated. In conservation, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Um, but then if you stop and you really start to write down, like what are the steps I've taken to go in that direction? You start to realize that, well, I've done stuff. You know, I've, I'm making a difference. It's, it's taking me time. But that's the reality of problem solving also in some of these situations. And I think that's one of the techniques I use is like making lists of what I've done to get in that, go in that direction, to achieve that vision, to achieve that mission. Um, and sometimes, you know, if I get really frustrated, I'll go for a run um, or I'll just, you know, take time out and just sort of sit with it. And sometimes I'll stop thinking about the problem. I'll say, look, I'm taking a day or two off. I'm not going to think about it. And then I'll come back with fresh eyes. So I think there's lots of different ways to try to tackle it, but it's very personal. It's very personal and leadership is very personal. I want to thank you for your leadership and thank, thank you. you for this conversation. Thank you very much, Alan. Thank you for listening to this episode of New Thinking for New World. I'm Alan Stoga, podcast host, and I look forward to your joining our next conversation. Remember, tell us what you think at telbergfoundation.org. 